like to start out by being a bit vulnerable. Uh, Melissa and I, over the past year or so, have watched several individuals, uh, several families, just be ripped apart by the enemy of God. Not necessarily from this church, just people that we know, people that we're acquainted with, some intimately acquainted with in the East Texas area, some friends and, and people uh, in, the, in the Dallas area. Uh, we've either witnessed firsthand or have literally heard about several families that are just being torn apart by adultery, um, by divorce, by selfishness, by uh, godlessness, ungodliness. And uh, I tell you, we are not only grieved in our hearts and grieved in our spirits, we're angry. I don't know if I can be vulnerable enough to say that to you this morning, but we are angry. We're angry at the enemy who is relentlessly trying to destroy lives. To be honest, we are, we are angry at uh, the people who have foolishly allowed uh, their faith to become inactive and powerless. Just being honest with you. Uh, we're also very concerned We're on alert. You know, Paul writes a couple of letters to Timothy. In one of his letters, he said, The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. In his second letter to Timothy, he says, Timothy, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of money, lovers of self, boastful, arrogant, revilers or revelers, Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. I mean, this is a long list. Malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he, he says, holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. And then he actually says, avoid such men as these. And I think that's what's so hard about all of this that Melissa and I are, are witnessing and, and hearing and seeing is that, um, you know, Paul's talking about people that claim to be believers, even strong believers. And some of the people that Melissa and I have seen and heard about and are witnessing the lives just being destroyed, ripped apart, have been people that have, have held position in the church. People who have um, people who have been um, integral in, in um, our discipleship, people that we've seen that have been influencers, that have held high esteem in the hearts of many people. In 1 Corinthians 4, and you can go ahead and turn there because we're going we're gonna to be there for a little bit. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Paul uses the word stewards, And we know that Jesus taught on the standpoint of, of stewardship and, and being a steward. And a steward is basically someone who is put in charge of some sort of possession, some sort of property, uh, even um, personal affairs of someone else. That's what a steward is, someone who's in charge of something for someone else. And here's the thing, a steward is not the master. 
A steward is not the master, he is the manager, or he is the caretaker of the property or whatever of the master. (laughs) I want you to listen to me real close. Not only does the gospel, the faith, belong to our master, Jesus, Jesus Christ, we belong to our master. We belong to Jesus. And we have a responsibility to steward what has been entrusted uh, to us um, in such a way as to show diligent, uh, diligence, utmost diligence. It says, let a man, this is um, verse 1 and verse 2, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. It says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Now, some of your versions actually say faithful. So it's saying that a steward is someone that should be found faithful. Let me say it one more time. A steward of God's presence, of God's gospel, of this temple of the Holy Spirit is someone who should be found faithful. Melissa and I have been witnessing uh, believers. We've been witnessing stewards of the faith live unfaithfully. And there's a protectiveness that comes over us. You know what I mean? As we watch and see and hear these stories, there's a protectiveness that comes over us. A protectiveness even uh, for our own lives. Last night, Melissa and I, after kind of one of those rough nights with the fam, you know, it's just intense, tired, frustrated, sick, not feeling good. You know, we laid in bed. You know what I mean? And we just were talking and we just, we realized that the enemy is, is actively pursuing our family. He's actively pursuing our lives, trying to weasel his way in. And we're like, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we do let it happen. We, we, we let him have these little footholds here and there. And then all of a sudden we're like, whoa, what's going on? Oh, yeah, the devil doesn't like us. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you have to step back and get a grip. You know what I mean? In Acts 20, you don't have to turn there. But in Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Be on guard for yourselves. And that's what Melissa and I are... are Intensely trying to be on guard for ourselves. And then we hold a unique place in life. Because it goes on to say, And for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And I just want to say that Melissa and I and the elders of this church and the staff are committed to be on guard for you. We're committed to be on guard for you because the enemy's coming strong after you. And we, we talk about that from time to time, and it's no secret around here that we know that we have an enemy who is adamantly against God and any of those people that are connected to God. And so the war is on, right? The fight is on. And, uh, but I just want you guys to know that we're on guard for you. And, and our prayer for you is that you would take the advice, follow the advice of Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 where he says, verse 13, he says, Be on alert. He says, stand firm in the faith. I like this. He says, act like men, which is just a a way to say, be brave. He goes on to say, be strong. Be on alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. And what I want to do today is I want to lay out uh, a theme 
for us for this year. I've never done this before. I've never had a theme for a whole year. I don't even think in youth ministry whenever that's kind of the cool thing to do. I don't think I've ever done this. But, but for this year, 2012, and I am getting it in in January. See, it's still January, right? You know, we finished up our Holy Spirit Reign series last week. And, and, um, um, but we're starting um, a teaching series called Be Found Faithful. But this is more than just a three-week t- teaching series. It's, it is the theme for this year for the believers here at SOMA. A theme, a mandate for us is to be found faithful. And so every teaching that comes from this stage over this next year, whether it's within this teaching series or, or, you know, we like to do teaching series around here, um, it's going to be under the mandate or from the mandate of be found faithful. Instructions, encouragements, warnings, declarations, all kinds of things will come from this stage, but it will be under the under the mandate, under the wind behind the sails of <clears throat> be found faithful. Um, and we're going to start by spending three weeks in what many have called the most neglected book in the Bible, the book of Jonah. Uh, not Jonah. The book of Jude. I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> I'm a little delirious and sick this morning too. That boy's sick in the head. The book of Jude. Jonah is not neglected. Everybody knows about Jonah and the big fish. Jonah was a prophet. Never. Okay. So turn to the book of Jude. Never really got it. Y'all remember that movie? Okay. The book of Jude. I think it's probably the most neglected book or considered the most neglected book in the Bible uh, for a couple of reasons. Probably because of its brevity. You know, it's a very brief book. It's, it's only one chapter. In fact, Jude in my Bible is one page. How many of in your Bible is one page? Isn't that interesting? Jude is, is one page. So maybe it's because of how short it is. If nothing else, though, it's, it's because of the intensity of it. The intensity of the, the content, but also the intensity of the delivery by Jude. And so it can be considered the, the most neglected book in the Bible. In fact, the way that Jude starts off is very similar to, uh, to what I have felt uh, in preparation for this, for this teaching and, and for this year, really. Uh, he gives a brief intro. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And then verse 3 and 4 is what we're going to focus mo- uh, mostly on this morning. Says verse three says, <clears throat> excuse me, beloved. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have creeped in unnoticed; those who were uh, long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I want to look at verse 3, and we'll look at verse 4 as well. But Jude here, who, by the way, is Jesus' brother. I won't get into all the details about that, but you do some research, and most scholars believe that Jude, uh, he says, I'm the brother of James, was also the brother of Jesus. I won't go into all that, but... Um, But Jude was going to write 
about just some good old gospel stuff. You know what I mean? Just, just thinking, talking, writing about the Lord. Just sharing about the faith. Just talking about things, you know, whatever. All kinds of stuff. But all of a sudden kind of felt an urgency to go on in another direction. To, to pause on that and go intensely in another direction. He says, I felt the necessity to write you appealing. I mean, that, there's a sense of urgency in his vocabulary there. And in fact, some of you, your versions may even say, I felt an urgency to write to you um, to contend for the faith. Um, and I think for me, in, in anticipating the end of the Holy Spirit Reign series, I had several things that I wanted to teach and actually very excited about teaching, and we probably will because it will fall under the, the heading of Be Found Faithful. But there was an urgency in me to focus on this thought, this theme, Be Found Faithful. Look at verse 3 again. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, good old gospel stuff, the Holy Spirit, I believe, caused in him an urgency, a necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. That you contend earnestly for the faith. And what I want to do is I want to look at that word contend, talk about contending, and I want to look at the faith. And we're going to start with the faith. And notice he didn't say fight for faith. To earnestly contend, to fight for faith. I think a lot of people read this and they apply this to believing God. I just got to fight to believe. You know, I just got to fight to believe in God. That's not what he's talking about. When he says earnestly, uh, contend earnestly for the faith, he's talking about the body of truth that centers on uh, Jesus Christ, that centers around Jesus the faith, everything that can be compiled about our faith, like in Acts 2.42, most of us are familiar with Acts 2.42, it says that the church, or the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to that body of truth, the faith. If you look at uh, Romans 6.17, it says that they became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching talking about the faith, talking about that body of truth that encompasses our faith. It says to which you were committed. In Galatians, there's some guys talking about Paul, who we know used to be Christian killers, uh, a Christian killer. And they said, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith. He's talking about that body of truth that centers around Jesus Christ. And, and uh, it says, uh, which he once tried to destroy. In other words, there was a time in Paul's life where he actually tried to destroy the faith. Everything that had to do with the faith. In fact, in Acts 22, Paul himself said, I persecuted this way. Several different times it would talk about the, the followers of Christ following the way. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. If you're writing things down real quick, I want you to write this down. The faith is the way that a believer should live. The faith is the way that a believer should live. And so when he says uh, contend earnestly for the faith, he's saying you need to contend, you need to fight for the way that you should live. See, the way, the body of truth that Jude is talking about isn't just doctrinal. It's also moral. There's a system of not just belief, but there's a system of living based upon what you believe. That's why Paul says to watch your, your doctrine closely because what you believe is what you will become. Talking about the faith. He says, for certain persons, in verse 4, 
Certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. In case you don't know what licentiousness is, it basically means license to sin. License for immorality. So what Jude is saying is that there were those who were influencing within the church who had be, <coughs> excuse me, who had a perverted or distorted view of God's grace. And because they had a distorted view of God's grace, they also probably had a distorted view of the forgiveness of sin. And that led them to believe that it was okay to indulge in immoral behavior, especially sexual immorality. They obviously hadn't read Paul's letter to the Romans. You know, remember when Paul said, hey, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But then he says, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may increase? And he goes on to say, no, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. That doesn't even make any sense. And these people that he's writing to are believers. And if they're believers, more than likely they had heard the teachings of Paul. They had heard these kinds of things. Look what he says. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And then he says, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So in Jude's opinion, we're reading this. In Jude's opinion, which again was according to that body of truth that had been handed down all the way from the apostles. The apostles had been teaching. And it had been a while. The apostles had been teaching this for a while. And you know, um, long enough for the truth, the faith, the gospel, and all of it, its entirety, to become a complete thought. It's like by then, there's no, there's no question about what the faith is, what the, the message is, what the doctrine is, and what the moral living should be. So by this, faith, by this time, um, you know, it's pretty, pretty solid. So in Jude's opinion, according to that body of faith, that that doctrine and moral code called the faith to intentionally involve yourself in that kind of behavior was to deny Christ. That's what he says. Turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is probably why the book of Jude is one of the most neglected books of the Bible. People don't want to hear that. People don't want to be told what you're doing does not line up with the faith. doesn't line up with the doctrinal code or the moral code that stems from the doctrinal code. What you're doing is inappropriate for a follower of Christ. The life that you are pursuing at this moment does not add up to what has come out of your mouth in the past. And this is, this is what Jude is, is talking about. And we're, we're going to spend three weeks in Jude and, and hear some of the specifics about what he's saying. And listen, it's inevitable. Let me just say this. It's inevitable that that every time I preach even a message like this saying, calling for holiness, calling the people to come apart from the world, away from the world, it is, it is um, interesting how um, the few weeks following that, the attendance is hugely low. Every time. I'm just saying. Why? Because we don't want to hear that. Because we are, at times, at different seasons, indulging in, th- uh, in things, behavior, that aren't lining up to what's coming out of our mouth, the profession of our faith. And really quick, I want to go back to um, 
to verse 4 again. It says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Now, real quick on that, who were long uh, beforehand marked out for this condemnation. You have to remember, Jesus talked about this. Peter talked about this. Paul, two of, of, of John's three books towards the end talk about this, falling away, people creeping in, trying to throw you off track. So when he says that those who long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, uh, that's not saying that someone was created by God to be evil and distract people from loving him. What that's saying is that this has been talked about for a long time. Jesus talked about it. Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it. John mentioned it. And Jude now is bringing it up. When we pursue sin, we deny Christ. And there are people who would creep into uh, the realm of Christianity, the church, and the, the faith, and try to cause those little uh, um, sidetrack, those little rabbit trails in our lives. And he says, For certain persons who have crept in unnoticed, who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, though I do think that there are people who literally uh, creep into churches. I mean, literally, I think, I think there are people who are so sadistic, so weird, so weird that they will make their way in. They will put on their smiles. They'll shake their hands. They'll sit. They'll even say some amens. They'll even get involved in certain things. And they'll start twisting. They can even gain influential powers in the church or whatever. And they'll start twisting things. It happens. So I don't think it's happened here. For one we're on guard. We'll kick them straight. And, you know, I'm just same. But it happens. It does happen. And listen, I don't, I don't even know that that happens probably as much as it did in this culture and in this day. But what I do think is that our biggest church influencers are Christian authors. Christian authors. Now, I'll keep this very brief, but I I just want to say you have to be careful what you read. And if you're going to read something, read it alongside the Bible. You got your Bible right here. You got your book right here. Because there are a lot of books, plenty of books out there, that that are turning the grace of our God into licentiousness. There are. Some of you have read some of them. Dude, you got to read this book. You got to read this book. Good. I've been looking for a new book. You start reading and you're like, what the? And you go back to your friend. It's like, did you read this? Yeah, ain't it cool? It's like, no, man, there's some parts of this that ain't cool. I get what they're trying to say. You know, and that's the deal. You, you kind of get what some authors are trying to say. But listen, if you don't have a foundation in the faith, you're not getting what they're trying to say. And all of a sudden, the grace of our Lord is turned into a license to sin. It happens. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was a youth pastor several years ago, <clears throat> I was uh, studying one afternoon and, uh, at a local co- coffee shop up in Lindale. And uh, one of my students came in and saw me and was like, hey, what's up? And came over and sat by me. And so we were shooting the bull. And it was interesting because I was like, this person was just dropping all kinds of bombs. S-bombs, even F-bombs, you know, and I'm just like, hello, 
I'm your youth pastor. <laughs> and so I was like, hey, hey, you know, um, I can't help but notice, dude, your, your language is kind of strong. And that person was like, what? They're just words. It's like, well, yeah, they are just words. But, I mean, what, why do you feel like you, you have the liberty to, to say this stuff? I mean, this doesn't sound like you. Well, you know, I've been reading this book, and several people have been reading it, and it's just like, it's like we're just finding that, you know, we're free in Christ. You know, why are we bound up with all this religious stuff? Who said that the F word, it has to mean this? I'm like, I tell you, I say it does. That's what that means. And so we went on and on, and, and this person's talking, and I had my computer, my laptop, right in front of me, and I normally wouldn't do this, but I felt like the Lord said to do this. And then I blew it up as big a font as I could. And I typed in the F word. And that person's just talking and talking, and I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the person kind of got fidgety. I'm like, what's wrong? What's the problem? Nothing. Nothing's the problem. <laughs> you just look a little uncomfortable. Well, have I done something? <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I say, well, you must be uncomfortable. You know, and then I quickly erase the word, you know. <laughs> I said, listen, this word is, is culturally inappropriate. Therefore, it's inappropriate for you to say. It has a specific meaning, and it's inappropriate, inappropriate for you to just flippantly throw it around. I don't care how much freedom you think you have. I said, what if I got up on Wednesday nights and started teaching the Word of God with F this and S that and blankety blank this? Well, people probably wouldn't come. I was like, no, they wouldn't. And why is that? Because they wouldn't expect a youth pastor to be saying those words. Well, before I'm a youth pastor, I'm a believer. They wouldn't expect a believer to be saying that. You shouldn't be saying that. And all of that mentality, and there were several other things I wouldn't even get into, came from a book. I'm not going to say the book, but I guarantee you, 50% of you have read this book. And here's the thing. We've got to be careful. What we read. Line it up with the Bible. Look at it. What does it say? You know, and it doesn't matter if the author is writing things on purpose or just saying things and putting things on paper out of ignorance, our responsibility is still the same. And that is to fight for the faith. It's to be on guard, to stand alert, to be brave and say, you know what, I know this is a popular thing going on, but I ain't going there. To be strong. Be found faithful to resist the rebellion. We're going to talk about that next week. To resist the rebellion that's going on against the wonderful, powerful, holy grace of God. I think we're living in a day, like Mr. Underwood said, where it's a fight. It's a fight. And that's the next thing that he says. Or he actually says it right before. Contend earnestly for the faith. For the doctrine, but also the moral code. For the life, for the way. Contend for the way of living that you ought to live. That you have been called and set apart and empowered to live. 
And this isn't going to take very long because the fight, it's, it's, it's very simple. He says, fight for the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith. And that word, <coughs> it means to contend. It actually means to, um, to struggle. In fact, this is the only place in the Bible that this word is used like this. Variances of this word are used all over the place, like in Paul's teaching. Um, I commend you and trust you with this, Timothy, in accordance with prophecies previously made about you, that, you, that by them you fight the good fight. And then we know in one of his letter, or first letter, he wrote, he said, fight the good fight of faith. He said, fight the good fight of faith. And at the end of his life, we know he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. He said, I have kept the faith. And so there's that idea of fighting for the faith is, is somewhat of a theme in Paul's life for sure. But it's the only place it's used like this. And it, and it means a struggle. It means an intense effort like in a wrestling match. As in a wrestling match. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I have struggled intensely like a wrestler to make sure that the way that I live is becoming of who that I say that I am. Amen? There's a quick video I thought I would show before we move further. just a snippet but ain't it cool (laughs) i thought man maybe we could kind of kind of clear out some space in here and just have some practical application you know what i mean it is interesting that that one of the most popular things going on in our culture right now is mma mixed martial arts and and uh and the whole um um ufc and all that stuff which i i personally enjoy i think it's kind of fun it's a little uh a little bloody but you know I mean, so is working on the car. You know, you're under there, bloody knuckles. So, I mean, anyway. <laughs> but you think about, if any, some of you may have even done um, that type of training, that type of um, activity, boxing, wrestling, karate, uh, whatever. And uh, it's interesting. It's, it's an intense thing. And there's no downtime. When you are engaged in the match, when you're engaged in the fight, there's no downtime. Downtime means you downtime. You got downtime. <laughs> On the floor, you know what I mean? There's no downtime. It's an intense fight. It's a struggle to the end, which is something that Paul said over and over and over. He who perseveres to the end will be saved. Persevere, persevere, fight, go fight, win. I'm going to close with this. I was, I was reading some Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. Some of you know who that is. And he, was, he had some comments, all kinds of really neat comments um, about what it means to fight the faith, how to fight the faith, fight for the faith, rather. And um, three things I want to close with. He says what it takes to wrestle for the faith, to wrestle, you know what I mean, to wrestle like what we saw, is one, um, our armory, 
You can write it down. Our armory. And he says the inspired word of God is our armory. It's what we have to fight with. It's, it's the number one tool, our armory. And I just thought about for a wrestler or mixed martial artist or karate or whatever, boxing, especially in wrestling, how important it is to know the moves. There are moves. If they do this, you do this. But if they do this, you counter with this. It's important. And if you don't know those things, you don't even stand a chance. There was this, I almost put this video up there, but um, I found it and I couldn't find it again. <clears throat> it's a, this guy, these two guys are, are, are getting ready to go. And, you know, the referee or whatever says, go. And whatever. And before the one dude even knew it, the guy, this one guy just jumps over on top of him, grabs him in the air, does this whoop a doo boop doo thing. And, I mean, within three, in fact, the video was called um, The Fastest Takedown Ever or whatever. And it was like literally three seconds. This guy had jumped up, and I was like, I want to learn how to do that. <laughs> it was totally awesome. There are moves, and if you don't know the moves or how to counter the moves, you're going down. And it's just like with the Word of God. If you don't know this, because this, Scripture says, in Him we move and live and have our being. If you don't know this, what you can count on is to be led astray. You can count on being taken down. You can count on being one of those people who are falling away from the faith. I'm just saying it plain. Because the day is coming and is here. In the last days, people will be this, 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 and this. And we're seeing it all over. In the last days, people will fall away from the faith. And I tell you, who is it that's going to be? Well, Spurgeon says, you know what? Um, those who don't have a well-stocked armory will fall away. They will be taken down. The next thing he talks about is our army. And I love this. He's talking about the church of the living God. If you don't have the church, if you're not involved in church, and that can look like many things, I understand that, but if you're not involved in biblical community where people are loving you, encouraging you, supporting you, doing what they can to pray for you and build you up, you don't stand a chance. And it's the same thing physically for a wrestler. There's all kinds of things that they need. They need a, a strong upper body. Their upper body has to be in shape. You know what I mean? You ever see those guys that they're in the gym, they're working out, and they're like, look in the mirror, and they're like, just huge. They got this chest and these arms, and they go, and they can punch you in the face with their back. You know what I mean? Boom. Take that. But then you're like, whoa. But then you look down, and you're like, but where's your legs? And it's like, you know? They ain't got no legs. Chicken legs. You know? You, uh, when you're wrestling, you can't just have a strong upper body because of the moves and because of the nature of the event. You have to have a strong lower body. Guess what? You also have, a strong, have to have a strong core. You have to have good uh, cardio. You've got to be able to hang for intense amounts of time. Your body has to be intact. And there are those that say, I don't need the ear. I'm an eye, but I don't need the ear. Or I'm a foot, but I don't need the hand. It's ridiculous. If your body isn't in shape, if you're not connected, if you, if you are, 
you are not part of a well-built body, you can expect to be brought down. And the last thing he says is uh, our armory, our army, and our strength. And he likens that to the Holy Spirit. And of course, we got, just got through with an 11-week <laughs> teaching on the Holy Spirit, so I feel like we've made some headway there. We understand what it means to allow the, um, the Holy Spirit to reign in our lives. And <clears throat> I just thought about this, about in that type of a um, match, in that type of an event, a wrestling match, a fight, about how you have got to have this, this inner strength You've got to, to win, to come out the victor. You have to have an inner strength. It's about heart. Let me say it that way. There's got to be something in you that is strong enough. I will persevere. I will win. I will not give up. I will push through. And that's what the Holy Spirit is in us. The helper, the counselor. It's kind of like the cheerleader. You know, go, fight, win, crush him. You know, whatever. <laughs> crush him under our feet. I think that many of you are in the fight of your life. You're on the mat. Your feet are moving. Your hands are moving. You're a little bit timid. You're a little bit scared. You know that you're in the fight of your life, but you know you probably, your armory isn't well stocked. Maybe your body is not in shape or you're not part of a body or you've been separated. You're not connected. You're just kind of isolated, which is never good. And that's what I want to close with this morning. Is this kind of taken inventory of the armory, the army, the strength? Where are you at? And what I'd like to do is just pray a, a blessing, pray encouragement over you, that today could be the, the, um, the start of some training, knowing that the goal in mind is that you be found faithful. Amen.